Um, Why don't you turn to Romans 12, if you could, Romans chapter 12. And uh, I'm going to shift a little bit here. Um, Romans chapter 12, uh, verse 9. Romans 12, verse 9. Uh, It says there, "Let, let, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. This is a great phrase. Outdo one another in showing honor. Isn't that a great? It's one of the only competitive verses in the Bible. Outdo, try to outdo each other by showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Keep working at that fervency, being alive inside you and and to serve the Lord. Number two, verse 12, rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. Rejoice in hope. Hope is the breeding ground for being able to rejoice even when things are bad. Be patient in the middle of the tribulation because it surely will fade eventually. It has a shelf life. Be constant in prayer. Paul will say that in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. Pray without ceasing. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. We're trying to practice that in our homes and the things we're doing. Verse 14, I wanted, this is where I want to hone in a little more. Paul really gets aggressive about talking about how we deal with turbulence in relationships, and all of us do at some level. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another and do not be haughty. But, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. 17. Repay no one with evil for evil, but give thought to what you do, to what, to give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, verse 19, never ever avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For so by doing, you will heap burning coals on his head, which is a quote out of Proverbs. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul is dealing with some serious stuff in his life, um, some uh, breakthrough and Revival and planting churches and touching aprons and people get healed, but he's also dealing with turbulence in relationships. I mean, real turbulence. I don't know if you, you ever have done a list of the sufferings of Jesus, uh, sufferings of Paul, but he's, not, he's being turned over and beat. He's being stoned. He's being, you know, read 2 Corinthians 11. It's a big resume of all the sufferings of Paul. Amazing deal. But those, deal, those are mostly physical. There's a few of them that are emotional. But the pain that Paul went through at an emotional level with relationships were, was really tough if you read about it. He and Barnabas go out on the first missionary journey that's spreading churches outside of Jerusalem, really. They do one journey, then they get back, and then they disagree over what the ministry team's supposed to be. John Mark, you remember that, had abandoned them and uh, during one of the missionary trips. They get back. They're going to go again and launch. They're getting ready, the churches together and all that. And Barnabas is like, let's go, John Mark, let's go. You know? And Paul's like, no way. We're not taking him. He's not going to do it. And they had, it says, a sharp disagreement, a sharp disagreement where they divided in a major way. And that was in the church at Antioch, which had become the base for sending the kingdom of God out in the church. And it was so sharp a dispute that it split them. 
And so Barnabas took John Mark and Paul took Silas, as you remember. And it doubles up the impact of the kingdom and God is so redemptive in the things he does. But they had to deal with that. The church of Antioch had to deal with that. The trouble had not just started there. It started actually earlier in Acts chapter six in the church. The church is birthed. Everybody's happy. They're full of the spirit. 3,000 people saved in one day. More thousands are being saved. But they started uh, having trouble with, are we favoring the Jewish widows over the Greek widows? Remember that? In Acts 6, and there's like this disagreement and this thing going on, and they're just having to work out relationships. And um, Paul goes on, and he'll say in his ministry later, Demas, one of his main disciples, he'll talk about him in, I think it's Philemon, he'll write Timothy and, and Demas, we, they all say hello. And then you get to 2 Timothy, his last letter, and he's like, Demas, who fell in the love with the Lord, has deserted me. And he, I know, went through emotional hurt because he loved him so deeply. Um, he'll say in one place, all of Asia Minor, you know what that means when he says that? All of Asia Minor has deserted me. You know what Paul was saying is the seven churches in the book of Revelation 2 and 3 had deserted him. And so Paul had had uh, turbulence, yes, around the gospel, but maybe even around, you know, who knows? That was an opinion about Mark. Paul actually reinstates Mark later. Some people conjecture he was the wrong one. He was the one that like was holding the line. It was too judgmental about Mark and didn't extend grace when he should have done it. But either way, it was turbulence. And so Everybody I know, every church I know, every pastor I know goes through relational turbulence. And it's so important that we figure out, I don't think the issue is whether you're going to have relational trials. The issue is how you're gonna steward those relational trials. And so there's a lot in our epistles about this. Paul who's experiencing it and he's going through it, the, the process of affirmation and rejection of people applauding and people cursing and, and not only people that are away from him, they're rejecting the gospel, but even close people to him. David went through this in a major way. You remember David is anointed king and Saul is a family member. Saul's his father-in-law. He married a daughter and Saul for a chunk of his life, maybe seven, eight years, has appointed 3,000 soldiers to go kill David. He's on the run from cave to cave to cave, running around. I mean, that's, that had to be a tough moment. David's not done anything except slayed a giant that the army was nervous about. But Saul's jealous of him because they're singing songs about Saul slaying thousands and David tens of thousands. But either way, I think we read those stories and we look at the highlights of how things happen and don't think about the inner turmoil that must have gone on inside David's heart. The Lord sovereignly delivered David into, I mean, Saul into David's hands twice. One time in a cave and one time when the camp was there and a supernatural sleep had come on the 3,000 Saul. And David both time has his mighty men who are running for their lives and lives have been messed up by this. I mean, they're with David, but it's trouble. You've got the green beret, you will, if the Israeli army, army are coming to try to kill you and a king is dedicated to it. It's an amazing thing. And they said to David when this happened, you remember one time Saul went in the cave and it says he went to take care of things and relieve himself. And so he sets his sword down, he takes his armor off and goes to do whatever. And in the very cave of all the caves in Israel, there's David and his mighty men. And they're like, that's Saul. Saul has been delivered into your hands is what they say. God has delivered Saul into your hands. Now kill him because he's been so wicked. What does David do? Does anybody remember? He says, how dare I touch the Lord's anointed and he does not kill him because David, I love it, I heard one preacher saying, David interpreted the prophetic purpose of God in his life differently than the leadership team that was with him. The leadership team are thinking, 
God's delivered so you can get him good. You can kill him. David saw that it was a test for his own heart whether he would trust God. That's what he saw. You get this. Some of us say, opportunities open and man, I can slam or speak vile or I can go back or I can vindicate myself. But David didn't see it that way. David saw it as an opportunity. Am I gonna vindicate myself with my own hand and my own tongue or am I gonna turn this over to the Lord? Am I gonna, tr- this is an opportunity for David to trust God. In fact, in one of the encounters, he cuts off, I think, a little piece of the robe of Saul's deal. He's even conscience stricken that he did that. He showed it to Saul and said, I could have done, but I didn't. And I'm honoring you. And Saul repented and then he got demonized again and tried to kill him. It was a crazy journey for him. But David's heart was set in a powerful way of how to deal with kickback and trouble that happened in his life, even when it was family and it was friend. The end of his, that's in 1 Samuel. In 2 Samuel, David's deal is about Absalom. He's got a son who's actually trying to seduce and become the king of Israel. He's trying to win people away from him. And in the middle of it, people are trying to say, you gotta deal with Absalom, even kill him. And he's like, no way. (laughs) He entrusts his soul Unto the Lord, I'm gonna trust the Lord with what he's gonna do. Why am I talking about this? I'm talking about this because this. I, you, we all, everybody I've ever met deals with turbulence in relationships. And often the enemies are not the people that we barely know that are writing bad things about us somewhere or on Facebook. A lot of times it can seem that the troubles within your friendships and your family or acquaintances that you have or business workers that work with you. And all of a sudden, what seemed like a friend doesn't seem like a friend. Whether perceived or real, it's just what it is emotionally. And the question is, how will we deal with that? I just wanna encourage you with this thing. Uh, Amy showed me a... Uh, in Utmost for His Highest, there was a quote yesterday. I don't know if anybody reads Utmost for Your Highest. You ought to read that. It's a great, great one in Streams in the Desert. But it says, uh, uh, he was talking in his devotion. He says, another thing that distracts us in our passion for, is our passion for vindication. Another thing that distracts us is our passion for vindication. St. Augustine prayed, Oh Lord, deliver me from this lust of always vindicating myself. Oh, Lord, deliver me from this lust of always vindicating myself. Such a need for constant vindication destroys our soul's faith in God. Don't say, I must explain myself. I must get people to understand. Our Lord never explained anything. He just left the misunderstanding or misconceptions of others to correct themselves. When we discern that other people are not growing spiritually and allow that discernment to turn to criticism, we block our fellowship with God. God never gives us discernment so we can criticize, but so we can pray. And I just was challenged by that and my wife again in the middle of my journey of this lust to vindicate ourselves. There's so many Bible verses, especially in the Psalms, that say, Lord, vindicate me, O Lord. I put it back in your hands. In fact, the quote that Jesus did on the cross, you remember what he said? And then he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. Do you remember when he, said, when he said that, he's quoting Psalms 31, David. David who said it, and it didn't mean just, I'm committing my spirit so I go to heaven when I die. It surely includes that, but it's more than that than the context. In the context, it was, Saul wants to kill me, 3,000 people want to kill me, people are turning against me, so Lord, I commit my spirit, my whole being, and my safety into your hand. I won't take it into my hand. I'm going to Commit it to your hand. And that's what I think Paul's writing in the spirit of that in, his, in Romans 12. He's saying, leave room for the wrath of God. Leave room for God to act and for him to do what he would do. If you take the room, 
then you're not in faith and you're trying to vindicate yourself and trying to correct. But if you'll step back and pray and give things into God's hands, then he will do what he will do in his time. And so I just want to encourage your souls about this as an exercise as we, we go forward into Thanksgiving and we see family and we, and we go forward in life on earth and we bump up against people that are in process, you know what I mean? And you're just in process and we're all in mixture at some levels and we're trying to work it out that we would really extend blessing and we would extend ourselves in prayer and we wouldn't miss the opportunity. See, David saw this as, an, as a seminary class, if you will, for his soul. This is an opportunity for me to trust God. If, if, the, if he'd done what the men said to do, he would have been doing what looked like a righteous thing, but he would have been trusting in his own hand to bring deliverance for himself. And I just want to encourage you to learn how to turn these things over to the Lord, to pray for those that curse you, to buy a meal for someone that might not like you, to give them a cup of water is what he's talking about. That's the spirit of the kingdom in that process. And by the way, the drama that's around you may be uh, justified. It may be unjustified. It may be big. It may be small. Your perception, I think it's really helpful for me because I usually always don't discern really the reality of the drama that's going around me. And God's actually working in the midst of it. And so I just want to encourage you in the middle of that. Some of you have been on the planet long enough, and we've had some talk with friends about multiple situations and uh, in a process. It's so fun. I, I, I'm, in a, I'm in a process right now of some so cool restoration with even relationships of like 10, 15 years ago, just some cool stuff that's happening and God's doing. And then there's other challenges that are happening. But in the middle of them, there's an amazing moment. There's an amazing opportunity to sanctify our souls and to entrust our souls to the Lord. Does that make sense? So I want to encourage you all. It's just basic stuff I know about life, but don't miss the opportunity. This is a way to worship God and trust God and to give these things into him. And I'm preaching to you and I'm preaching to me. And I want to be on that place where I'm loving Jesus and I'm loving the shepherd of people's souls, whether we are really, uh, yay, or we're a little bit, eh, and I don't get it, but we're just trusting him in the end and he will prosper us as we go forward. So Father God, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would bless us all in all our relationships that we're in. Thank you for, uh, yeah, uh, Jesus, even as you said, uh, even the tax collectors <laughs> and the Gentiles love those who love them. But to, to love those, maybe where there's some conflict or even if somebody's slandering us or, or whatever, I just pray for the ability to steward this in a way where we entrust things into your hands. I just want to get better at it. You've helped me a little. I'm better in my 20s or 30s, but I want to get better, Lord, to, not, to free us from the lust of vindicating ourselves and how we in that end up making it worse. And so I just pray for us to trust and respect and be patient and bear and, and uh, to trust your leadership in our lives. Lord, we thank you so much that you've done that in so many ways, but God, just commit our hearts to that in, in Jesus' name. Um, amen, amen, great.